I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I've always prided myself on being a smart shopper. As a child, I would watch my mother clip coupons and find deals that helped her feed four borderline gluttonous kids. As a young adult, I used my experience working at a high-end grocery store to learn where I could cut costs and still eat well. Now, my method is down to a science. But bottom line, I'm still paying more for the same food. That is problematic. What about thousands of Middle Tennesseans? What are they facing right now as food prices continue to rise? For people already living with food insecurity, the situation becomes even more dire. Later this hour, we'll hear how the rising cost of food is impacting Middle Tennesseans and learn what help is available. But first, we're highlighting the WNXP Nashville Artist of the Month for November. You may have heard us mention her a couple weeks back when she landed her latest Grammy nomination. We're talking about vocalist and songwriter Jessie Wilson. She's made a triumphant return to music in large part because of her song, Keep Rising, which was featured in the film The Woman King. Don't you know together we are strong We're gonna fight the madness till it's gone We just gotta rise up 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 Rise That's the Grammy-nominated song Keep Rising, which Jesse Wilson recorded in a little backyard studio in East Nashville. Our senior music writer, Julie Height, has been covering Wilson for years and is here to talk about her work. Julie, welcome back to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So Keep Rising, I understand there's quite a backstory about how this song came to be the closing anthem at the end of Woman King. How, how did this happen? It's an unlikely tale, the kind of story that I that I love because she wrote that song, recorded it back in 2020, and then she had no idea what was happening with it, didn't think anything would happen with it because she lost her publishing deal, had no idea it was being pitched around. And the director of The Woman King, Gina Prince-Bythewood, actually had planned for the entire film soundtrack to be a composed score. Mm. She wasn't going to use any contemporary sounding songs at all. And then, you know, she eventually was sent a few songs and it really took Jesse Wilson's song standing out to make it into that film. Wow. How do you have an audience leave the theater? What do you want them to feel? I wanted them to feel uplifted and empowered. I heard keep rising and my head was going and my heart was going. It made me feel. And so I listened to it again and really listened to the lyrics. And it was as if it was written for the movie. And one of the things I'm most excited by is I love hearing Jesse's story. 
and who she is as an artist, where she was at the moment that this call came. I, I love that. Yeah, so that that that's it right there from Gina Prince Bythewood. How powerful that song was to grab her attention and wind up as the song that people hear over the closing tracks in a movie that opened at number one, the box office. Mm-hmm. As I said, you know, you've been following Jesse Wilson for a long time. How long has she been in the game? She has been a professional performer since she was eight years old. That's when she started auditioning for musical theater gigs in New York and actually landing those gigs. Mm. And she was the one with the drive. You know, it wasn't her mom pushing her to do it. It was her. Wow. That's pretty cool. She's so she's been really putting in the work. You know, I noticed that one of the features you you wrote for WNXP.org really kind of connects the dots between all of Jesse's musical credits. Can you sketch out her range of work and how she's managed to do so much? Yeah, I, th- I feel like it's really important to to take in the full picture because there's nowhere, nowhere on the Internet except except that post that you just referred to where all of her credits are in the same place because she's used different names, slightly different names, slightly mm-hmm. different spellings over time and also because she's worked in different cities, different genres, different scenes. And so most people in any one city, any one genre are not aware of all her of her accomplishments, you know, but I mean, she was singing backup for Alicia Keys in high school and then she landed a gig with John Legend. She appeared on many of his albums from the second one on and As soon as she started singing with him, she asked to go to the studio with him, started learning those ropes, got into professional songwriting. And then she has a number of credits with some really big R&B artists, you know, and was working in New York, L.A., Atlanta, and made her way to Nashville through songwriting. And that is where she first got her own record deal with a duo called Muddy Magnolias. They were more in the the roots music lane, I mean, Mm -hmm. leaning toward roots rock and soul. And then she got to make a great solo album called Phase with the drummer of the Black Keys, Patrick Carney, uh, co-producing. Okay, so she accomplishes all this, but she came to a place where she was ready to give up music altogether. What brought her there? Yeah, I mean, after after her solo album and after Tyler, the creator, loved her singing so much that he tracked her down, DM'd her on Instagram to sing on his album, Igor. I mean, all of these things that she'd accomplished, then she had a lot of just serious losses that that brought her low. I mean, not to make it sound like it had been smooth sailing. She was up against she she had to work hard and was up against a lot throughout her career, but mm-hmm. then she lost a beloved grandmother. She also almost lost her dad, who's a healthcare worker in New York, to COVID. She lost a pregnancy. She lost you know, really belief that anything good would come of her own artistic labors and lost her her own publishing deal, too. So all of those things compounded, you know, added up to her being ready to just walk away from music. And then it was actually on the day that she was originally due to give birth that she learned that her song, Keep Rising, was in The Woman King. Mm. Now we know that, you know, she's building on the response to Keep Rising now. I'd love to hear what her vision was for that song in the first place. What did she tell you? 
Yeah, I mean, she was she was taking in a lot of things. She's she's a very attuned and aware and, you know, sensitive person. So she was she was bringing to it what was going on in the world around her, the uprisings of 2020, Black Lives Matter protests. She was thinking about what she had been through and, you know, which, the emotional weight that she was carrying. And she was inspired by um, the the piano pattern that her co-writer, producer Jeremy Latito, had come up with that reminded her of Nina Simone. So all of those things, she started writing in collective language, like using the language of we, but also really owning it with her own life experience. Let's listen. I mean, when I wrote the song, I was talking to black people. We have to continue fighting as hard in our ways. It doesn't have to be the same ways, but that our ancestors did. There's a part of the lyrics that I'm also talking to myself about myself. Been marching so long. How far is it to get to where we're going? Like, how long do we have to wait in America? How long does Jesse have to wait? Wow. You know, you got to visit her in the studio a few weeks back. What was it like to see her in her element? I think what what really struck me was just seeing her bring all of her excellence, you know, all, all of the things that she has learned to do with her voice, how she's learned to operate in the studio and really produce herself, produce the session as she recorded this acoustic version of Keep Rising, you know? So just listening to her, I mean, getting to listen to her acapella at intimate range, close range, I could hear her, you know, just express um, impatience in, you know, in her lower vocal range and then leap into the moment of kind of full voiced, full throated power with grit just when she meant to do it, just when the song needed that. We have some raw tape. Let's listen. Take the metronome out. Got to understand. Uh, more vocal. Have him in our hand. From mighty kingdoms of a distant land Turn the world upside down, yes we can We just gotta rise up, rise up Keep rising mm-hmm. That's something else, Julie. Yeah, that was her warm-up. <laughs> wow. Well, Julie Height is the senior music editor and writer for Nashville Public Radio. Julie, thanks so much for your reporting, and thanks for always being on the show. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore how the rising cost of food is affecting Middle Tennesseans. Have you had to change your shopping routine due to the higher cost of food? Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In a perfect world, every community would have access to healthy, fresh, and affordable food. Sadly, that is not the case. While some people live close to a variety of grocery stores, even for those fortunate enough to have easy access to a neighborhood grocer, the cost of food is becoming a greater concern. Inflation has driven up the cost of, well, everything. 
According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, prices for meat, poultry, fish, and eggs increased 14.3% between April 2021 and April 2022. It was the biggest 12-month increase since 1980. So how are rising foods affecting people here in Nashville and Middle Tennessee? My next guests can give us some insight. Angel Holt is a resident of North Nashville. Seema Prasad is the owner of the restaurant Meal. And Reggie Marshall is a, is a local farmer and owner of Reggie's Veggies. Thanks to you all for being with us today. Really appreciate it. So, you know, I, I want to start by hearing how the rising cost of food is really affecting each of you. Angel, how has the high cost of food impacted you? Um, it's cut that back on how much you can spend for groceries. Like you said, eggs, you get for a dollar, I guess a dollar and fifty, they like four dollars or five dollars, some of you but seven dollars a dozen. And then meat is a necessity uh for some people and then the vegetables and stuff like that, when you need to try to buy them, it's too expensive to even buy the vegetables and fruit anymore. You have to get everything in a can uh, and try to store that up. But even with the food banks, they don't have meats. They just have canned goods pretty much now that you can pick up from food banks. You know, I understand you once ran a nonprofit but had to shut down due to the pandemic. And soon after, you had to start begin using food pantries yourself, yes. right? After being one to pass out food, I'm one to stand in line and try to get food now. Because most of us that are nonprofits have had to close the doors since the COVID hit. And we're unable to buy food. Even with Second Harvest, you still we pay a little bit of money to get the food, but you have to have the funding. The funding has just dried up. You, you had volunteers you worked with yes. who were in the same situation, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Well, tell me, how did the closing of the little pantry that could, how did that affect you in the community? It affected me quite a bit. That's where I would send people when I didn't have food because she was able to give out meat produce, you know, uh, like vegetables and fruit that people needed on an everyday basis, like cancer patients, which I'm a cancer survivor. So I know how important it is to eat the right kind of food. It cuts back on buying all expensive medication they give you. You will have to buy more medicine when you don't get the food that you need to eat. You know, earlier this year, we had a show where we talked about food pantries. Mm -hmm. Are there other ones outside of the little pantry that could? Are there other pantries that you could turn to? Not that I'm aware of. Most of them all are closed. Um, and when you do go to one, they just have canned vegetables, which has a lot of sodium and stuff in them, uh, like canned green beans you might get for them. Other little just canned foods, period, has so much sodium and you can't even take a chance in eating it. You have to get fresh stuff. Access to fresh mm -hmm. foods yes. are pretty much out of the question right. right now. It is. Now, Reggie, you operate and own Reggie's Veggies, and you're producing food, but Inflation has still affected your business, right? It has. Um, you know, the cost of gas, of course, traveling back and forth, and also the fertilizer I need. But one of the things I've done to help try and promote healthy uh, living and access to food in the community is help people learn how to grow food themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I, you know, container gardening is a, is a great way for families to uh, substitute grocery, stock, grocery shopping and, and, and decrease their food bill. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I taught a friend of mine how to raise vegetables in containers a couple of years ago, and this year he was able to raise enough tomatoes to buy a truck and mm. pay cash for it. Okay. So it was a 2016 Ford pickup truck. So, you know, those are the type of things I promote because if we, you know, we have to learn how to sustain ourselves. And, and, and part of that is using a lot of different agencies around, like, 
uh, Davidson County Extension Agency Office, uh, Tennessee Department of Agriculture, USDA, all those things are available to us. And and so, you know, we just, a lot of, a lot of times the, the, the information just hasn't been disseminated. So that's one of the things I do as well. I'm helping to promote that as well. Now, you mentioned fuel and fertilizer costs sure. going up. How much are we talking? Well, you know, from 2020 to today, I paid about $16 for a bag of nitrogen fertilizer, 50-pound bag. Today, that same bag is $39. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. But, again, if you start, people start raising more vegetables themselves, and they're taught how to do it. So there, there, there are a lot of resources out there, and I'm one of them. So that 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 could help that'll help mitigate a lot of these costs. Are you working on any cost cutting measures right now <clears throat> yourself? Oh yes, yeah. so I I've taken a piece of land out in Antioch and rejuvenated the land. It was rocky soil. I've hauled in over 400 tons of wood mulch, used the lasagna method, and I cut my water bill by 75 percent from last year. Last October, I spent over 200 dollars on water. This year, I spent 52 dollars as dry as it was. I'm also incorporating coffee chaff and coffee grounds from. Good citizens and Bongo Java coffee companies. Uh, so I'm using a lot of what what would be considered waste products, which everybody can get their hands on, mm-hmm. right? This is and and and, and, I, and, and if, as I talk about food security, I have to be the example of it. And with health disparity, I've lost over 116 pounds over the past five years. So wow. I'm off medication because okay. food is medicine. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully with that, I can show other people how to do it, and and, and again be that citizen guardian angel over over our community and and our state and and. And, uh, and 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 influence others to to live healthier and get off medication and if you again if you're growing your own food you're able to sustain yourself mm-hmm. and you don't have to spend money on medicine right yeah now Seema, as a restaurant owner how has the increase of food costs how how has that impacted you you know we definitely have seen um, a, a good portion of what we purchase um, not go up and that would be the local farmers have not really raised prices, and that might be because of fuel. They're much closer to us. However, the commodity items, so, you know, as Angel was saying earlier, sugar, um, Mm. butter, flour, those items are being trucked across the country. So, you know, 2,500-mile treks cost a lot more these days. And, you know, just a good example, just regular butter, unsalted butter, used to be $3 a pound. Now, pretty much across the board, it's about $5 a pound. The the higher quality, like the higher butterfat European butter, up to $6 a pound. And, you know, so everything's up 30, 40% in some of those larger commodity items. Sugar used to be about 19 cents a pound. It's almost a dollar 19 cents. So, I mean, we're going into the holidays where we're doing all this baking. And so I, I know people at home are feeling it. Usually we have significantly better prices buying in bulk, and, and that's not the case anymore. So it is translated in menu prices, definitely. Now, I understand you grew up with the philosophy of not wasting food. Can you tell me more about that? <laughs> at all. Okay. okay. <laughs> so depression era grandparents that were very influential in my life and had had a big garden that's, that supported the family year round. And so I grew up in the Northwest where that very much could happen. Uh, we didn't get tomatoes like you get here, but <laughs> we got great, um, great cabbage, great other things. Uh, we, we saved all of our, our compostable waste and that was our fertilizer. Um, and that, you know, that is something we can do here. As Reggie has described, he's taking what other people might consider waste and using that, especially that lasagna method of, you know, funneling it into the soil and that soil will then retain water. So there's yet another resource that we're able to save money on. Um, you know, we compost everything at Miel at the restaurant. We've, um, we've always sourced local in order to also save and we can give back to our farmers any of the compostable items that they may want for their farms. 
Um, but yeah, wasting is something we preach in in a lot of ways. We even you know table side, if a guest has items still left on their plate when they're finished, you know, showing them how they might be able to use that the next day. Um, hmm. Put that little bit of steak on a salad, or you know, make make some tacos out of it. Mm-hmm. But you know how because not everybody knows, and um, we we try and make sure people understand how they can best utilize the product that they've paid for. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelono. We're talking this hour about the rising cost of food and how it impacts our communities. My guests are Angel Holt, Seema Prasad, and Reggie Marshall. Now, Seema, before inflation hit us, the pandemic changed how businesses operate. How did you change up your business to adapt? So when we initially um, really needed to shut down, we, we shut down for a full year to table service. We, we went to a takeout business only. Mm-hmm. And very different for a much more fine dining restaurant to pivot to. We'd never allowed our food to be put in a box and taken away before. Um, so the menu pivoted. And we also had to look at what was available because many of our farmers went to a community-supported agriculture-only model. They were not supporting restaurants since many restaurants had closed their doors for a while. And we we have property around the restaurant that we grow, a lot of, you know, a lot of herbs, um, but we also tilled up my whole backyard <laughs> Okay. and it became a production garden for the restaurant. So um, we did whatever we possibly could. I mean, I grew up gardening, so we just had to do it on a larger scale uh, it, in order to support the, the food demand that we ended up having. Did you keep those practices? Are they still in place? They're still in place. Okay. Yeah. Raised beds and composting and fertilizing from the, I mean, the way I was raised completely. I mean, my grandmother... Um, ooh, that look you get if you threw something compostable in the trash, it would, yeah. Okay. Those looks can kill. All right. <laughs> All right. Now, Angel, you, I understand you also have health concerns that make it difficult for you to get food. Is that right? Yes. I'm a cancer survivor. And then I have uh, a lot of other stuff, like high blood pressure, diabetes, and a lot of stuff that I can't eat, uh, that I've had to eat in uh, this past year has put me in the hospital. Like, for example, I say sodium because they said that's what was raise my blood pressure up so high than eating things that have sugar in it. They like for us to eat fruit that has natural sugars. But when you buy stuff like applesauce that has sugar in it, it raises your sugar up and you got a lot of things go wrong, which cause you'd have to get more medication. And I've had a hard time get obtaining medication, but I keep getting these hospital bills as go they rise and higher and higher in hospital visit. Uh, he was saying how he lost so much weight. I was losing weight. Uh, getting everything back in shape until the COVID came, then I couldn't get the fruit and vegetables I needed. Mm-hmm. And the pantries that are able to give you food, I'm sure they're not giving you sugar-free applesauce. No, <laughs> you have to take whatever they give you. Mm. Now, more and more people are in need of assistance to cover food and living expenses. Food stamps or EBT cards are always a way to help, but that's not really easy to qualify. Angel, I understand that you found yourself in a situation where one form of assistance essentially canceled out the benefits of another form that you were depending on. Yes. Can you tell me what happened there? Um, I get a disability check, and somehow they gave me a raise on my check, and I qualify for dual complete uh, insurance. But when they gave me the raise, they say you no longer qualify for Medicare. Medicaid. I'm sorry, you only have Medicare at this time. So they were giving you $50 across the counter to buy groceries. I lost that benefit. They say I no longer qualify for that. I try to try uh, apply for a food stamp. They say you no longer qualify for food stamps. You, that couple hundred dollars they gave me a year took me a couple hundred dollars over. I think it, if you look at it, 
they said I was like $12 a month over what I should be making, mm. getting receiving from the government. So it took me over. So I've had to go to the hospital many times uh, just to get my blood pressure back down under control. If they had t- just taken that money and given it to me to buy the groceries, I wouldn't have been sick and laid up in the hospital. And so this is food-related illnesses yes. and hospital visits. Right. How difficult is it to get effective and reliable assistance if the system is kind of got you in this Sisyphus situation? It's very difficult. I've called, asked them to take the money back, done everything, and they said, no, this is what we give you. And then also with the uh, insurance thing, they got so now they if you over a limit and they have these co-pays you have to pay, if you don't have the money to pay for the food, you don't have money to pay for the medicine, then you just back in the hospital again. Mm. Reggie, you've decided to accept SNAP cards at your vegetable stand. And when you go to farmer's markets, what led you to that decision? Well, that, that, that's been since 2014. I was at a uh, farmer's market boot camp, and uh, there was a, a gentleman there who ran the Donaldson Farmer's Market. And he said <clears throat> he decided to do it at his farmer's market and was surprised that some of his vendors, as well as other people in the community who he had no idea, used the EBT cards. And so uh, one of the things that <clears throat> for me with EBT card recipients is not preached enough is that they can buy seeds to grow vegetables. They can buy plants. And it's estimated that every dollar of CB- EBT card money that's spent to buy seeds equates to $25 worth of groceries. So if that is promoted more as opposed to just telling people to go to the grocery stores, mm-hmm. Then not only do you add more food to the table, but you know, because I grew up in a, in a house, I tell people I grew up in an extremely uh, wealthy family with no money. We had a back room with two deep freezers. I grew up on a farm. Yeah. And we had a, we had we called it the back room, but today you call it a pantry. It was full of food. So everything everything back there we raised. So if people are raising, and you don't have to have a large, like I say, you don't have to have a large plot of land to to raise vegetables or or fruits, but. If you don't, if, if if you don't know those resources are available, then you, you you can't tap into it. And again, that's one of the things I'm really pushing for with all the agencies I, I affiliate with. Have you seen more people using SNAP or BE or EBT cards to purchase food from you? Uh, it's about the same. You know, when I was at the National Farmers Market, to give you an idea, the the people who you typically who you typically see as stereotypical users of the EBT card that what that wasn't my customer. Mm. Well dressed. Uh, a lot of Caucasian, uh, uh, well-dressed people who were downtown, right? So, you know, a lot of times when people don't accept the EBT card, you're you're just taking money out of your pocket mm-hmm. because the grocery stores are getting it. But, but more than anything, I think with us, with with folks who are on those, to help them, especially nowadays, because everything is so expensive. You know, you got to share all the knowledge you have. Graveyards are full of secrets. We don't need to take any with us. So anything you can do to help the community, help people out, you, you put it on the table. Hmm. And that's that's what I want. Every day of my life, I want to give something back. Mm-hmm. Now, Seema, you spoke a little bit about this earlier, the conservation of food. How can people at home, Reggie just said graveyards are full of secrets, so we're going to throw some out here right mm-hmm. now. How can people at home take steps to make their food last longer and stretch it further? You know, there are a lot of just food production, like processes that um, just taking simple food production classes, which, you know, we offer um, from time to time at at the restaurant for the public. It's learning how to take a chicken and make five meals out of it um, and take that carcass and make a stock and and really stretch the food um, to to maximize its use. Uh, 
you know, I was talking earlier, uh, even to Rose, who's one of the producers here. Um, she, we're talking about strawberries. Instead of cutting the whole top off of it, you core the top out and your yield is much greater. I mean, it's one thing that we practice in restaurants a lot is, you know, if your yield is six or 7% greater over the year, what does that equate to in dollars and in savings and, and hopefully passing that along to a customer in savings on the, on the menu price? We, we can do the same thing at home. Angel, what type of resources would you like to see help people who are living with food insecurity? Uh, increase the amount of SNAP that p- people can qualify for and cut the limit up a little high so they have money to pay their rent and their other bills and get their medication. Other needs that's out there that people feel like they they have to have a place to stay so they give up their food, they give up getting their medication, and then, like I said, they end up in the hospital. But I like to see more money put back into the community and open a lot of the nonprofits back up like myself so we can help people. Because right now, when people come to me, I don't even know where to send them because most of the uh, places are closed down. That is Angel Holt of North Nashville. She was joined by Seema Prasad, owner of Meal, and Reggie Marshall, owner and farmer at Reggie's Veggies. I want to thanks to you, give thanks to you all for being with us today. Really appreciate it. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about why food costs have gone up and what kind of help is available for those of us who are the most vulnerable. Are you living with food insecurity? Are you seeking help? Tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about the rising cost of food and how it's affecting farmers, restaurateurs, and people living with food insecurity. Now let's get a better understanding of why food costs have gone up and what resources are out there to help. My next guests can help to give us those answers. C.J. Sentel is the CEO of the Nashville Food Project. Dr. Kristen Fritz is the Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And Eden Murray is the CEO of Operation Stand Down Tennessee, a veteran support organization. Thanks to you all for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. So... To start, we used the term food insecurity in our previous segment. CJ, can you tell us really what that is, what that means? Sure. Well, uh, there's a technical definition that the USDA uses, but I think the most the most general way to think about this is that un- food insecurity is unreliable access to affordable, nutritious food. So um, it, it's not just um, lacking food in the moment, but it's sort of more of a chronic or uh, long-term lack of access, and it includes both affordability and nutritious. Oh, so the so-called people who live in food deserts would happen to be their food insecure. That's right. That's right. Yeah, interesting. Last week I was hanging out with a friend, and we drove to a part of Nashville where he showed me. We went to basically a gas station slash corner store, mm-hmm. and he showed me all the produce. He said, because for miles— there's no grocery store around. That's right. Something else. How many people in Nashville are food insecure? Uh, that's a good question. So the, the the figure that we use a lot is uh, one in eight Nashvillians are food insecure, uh, while one in seven children 
uh, and that is a bit higher than the national average. Uh, Pre-pandemic, it was one in nine. Um, and so, um, you know, during the pandemic, though, that those rates doubled and even tripled for families with, with children. Well, what's the base root of the problem? Do we not have enough food or is there a disconnect going on somewhere? Well, that's a great question. I mean, this is one of the fundamental premises of the Food Project um, in the sense that in this country, 40 percent of the food that is produced is thrown into the trash every day, while one in seven, one in eight people in our city lack food. Hmm. So production, it's not a production problem. Uh, on the one hand, it's a logistics problem, getting the food that we have to the people who need it when they need it. Uh, and it's also a problem of social values, what we value, who we value, um, and what we do to those people uh, when they're experiencing food insecurity, housing insecurity. Can you briefly tell me about the Nashville Food Project and the work that's done there? Sure. Um, yeah, what we're doing, uh, we started a little over 10 years ago uh, out of a small church kitchen in Green Hills, Woodmont Christian Church. Um, and we began by recovering food uh, and making it into hot, nutritious, ready-to-eat meals that were delivered directly to people uh, experiencing food insecurity. Nowadays, we work alongside uh, a, a, about 50 nonprofit partners, poverty-disrupting partners, and we enhance their programming with the food that we're recovering. So we're recovering about a quarter million pounds of food a year hmm. uh, and making between five and 6,000 meals a week um, to to you know, uh, alleviate food insecurity in, in the city. Now, in your work, how have you seen the rising cost of food affect people and their households? Uh, it absolutely has. Um, the, we were talking about this just before the show. It's it's remarkable, and we we tend to forget how uh, close to the edge so many people in our city and our country are living. And so, with inflation in particular, um, you see uh, people having to make economic decisions about keeping to paying the rent or paying the mortgage versus buying groceries. Um, and so it really is a, a matter of economic security. Hmm. Uh, food security is a, is a subset of economic security. Okay. Now people are stretching money and skipping meals to pay the bills. That can have a negative health effect on their health, but it also affects children. Dr. Fritz, how does food insecurity affect the health of kids? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point and great question. Um, we know that children that grow up in food insecure households have higher rates of medical um, problems such as anemia, um, cardiovascular disease like hypertension or um, other heart issues, um, um, as well as things um, like mental health problems, anxiety, depression, and don't have um, as good of development as they're growing as children. How widespread is the problem of food insecurity? Like, are you all seeing more and more families come in? Um, I think similar to what CJ was saying, we have definitely over the past really two years seen this become more of an issue among families in Tennessee. Um, in a, a poll over the past year done by the Child Health Policy Center of talking to just families within Tennessee, um, they found that one in three families reported food insecurity at some point over the past year. One in three families. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I'm curious, like, what kind of food-related issues you're seeing Middle Tennesseans struggling like with? Are, are there any challenges that you see that are specific to our area or populations that you see as particularly at risk? Absolutely. You know, I think um, 
as a sort of a, a hospital system, we serve certainly Middle Tennessee, but also people from sort of all over the state and surrounding areas. And it really seems that unfortunately that struggles with food insecurity are are a problem for people from all of those areas right now um, and families with children. So how are you identifying families that are in need? Um, so we have some ongoing initiatives within both primary care clinics and within um, the hospital at Murrow Carroll um, working to screen families for food insecurity. So we use two um, questions called their hunger vital sign, which are validated nationally used questions um, to help identify families that might be having this issue and benefit from additional resources. Um, and in order to allow families the um, opportunity to not really have to discuss sort of, sort of this sensitive topic out loud, we give them a piece of paper to complete with these questions at the time, either they're being, um, you know, ready to be taken into the clinic or at the time they're being admitted to the hospital. Um, and then those answers are, you know, taken and, and acted upon by the medical teams as needed. Why is it so important to handle these situations with sensitivity? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a hard thing for anyone to go through, but um, I think especially for families with children, um, I think there's certainly stigma associated with the topic in general, but think also concern or fear that parents maybe think they may be viewed as being, you know, poor parents or, or not providing for their children mm. um, when we know that they're just simply doing the best that we can and we want to help them. Um, mm -hmm. Now, Eden, your organization works with veterans. What kind of food related issues are you seeing veterans struggle with? Exactly what you're hearing already mm. um, today. And so we're seeing this too. Veterans maybe who would not have come to Operation Stand Down, you know, for assistance, didn't feel that they needed our assistance have, have come out, especially COVID exacerbated that. And we're seeing that now with inflation. And uh, just to address the stigma piece, that is really hard. Veterans, some statistics will say that veterans are twice as likely to be food insecure. And part of that is a stigma issue, exactly as Dr. Fritz said, you know, I don't want to admit that I can't put food on the table for my family. Mm -hmm. I could, you know, support my country, but now I can't feed my family. And so um, to what CJ was saying, I think the access piece is really, really important. So besides having food where we are, we try and put food in other places. For instance, student veterans. Student veterans are older than normal veterans, and they might be married and have a family, but they're going to school full time, and maybe they have a stipend or whatever. But all of a sudden, you're food insecure. And it goes to your point, too. You wouldn't know that. Oh, you're going to Belmont and you're food insecure? How could that be? Mm -hmm. Well, this is why. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I think is important for folks to understand we were talking about this just before that your neighbor, you know, sitting right next to you could be like, wow, I didn't know that. So that's, we're seeing the same thing just in that niche population. What about active military members are, what are they experiencing? Yeah, no, exactly true. And the Department of Defense, I was just reading an article the other day, I keep up with my past life. And it was reading about how uh, getting, trying to get Congress to, uh, to give more um, in their, uh, basic allowance on food, especially if you think, you know, think you're young enlisted troops and whatever service they are, often they're married again and have families and we're not paying them a whole lot. And so we give stipends and we do all that, but it's not kept up with inflation. So the Department mm -hmm. of Defense, Secretary Austin has asked Congress, you know, let's do that. And the other thing is um, things like SNAP, look at your, um, how much you make, how much money you make, and if you qualify for that. Well, unfortunately, SNAP 
uh, SNAP was looking at the military saying, oh, you've got this stipend, so you don't qualify for SNAP. And so things like that to be changed. Uh. And women in, you know, WIC, Women's Influence in Children, to be able to use those at the local stores and also really giving access to some of the active duty troops to really help them do that. Can you tell us more about Operation Commissary? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Operation Commissary um, came out of the pandemic, actually. Um, Operation Stand Down Tennessee always had a food bank, but it was, you know, Eden donated her evaporated milk three days before it expired. wasn't the best food bank. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, Second Harvest got a grant through Feeding America to feed veterans and asked us, hey, would you like to partner? And of course, it's great. Second Harvest is awesome. And so that's where it started. And then as we did that, again, we became more familiar with the need and it was exacerbated by COVID and then certainly inflation and all of that. So now we have Operation Commissary. On every poster base is a commissary. So anyone who's, you know, a veteran is familiar, it's like a shopping center Mm -hmm. uh, on post, on base. And so we deliver food bags, over 300 food bags. You sign up. I have to prove you're a veteran because the funding's for veterans. You sign up. We are buying the food from Second Harvest. That's how, what we raise the money for. And you ask, why do you buy it? Because Second Harvest is great. They'll give you what they have for free, but you want a more nutritious bag, so you're going to buy what you need. We change those bags up every month. We're delivering a bag a month. It's not going to keep. It's not going to feed you for a month, but it's going to help. And you know, if you need it more often, we can. And if you're a family of four, you're getting three bags. You know, things like that. And so we're delivering them, and then we're placing them at the student veteran centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're placing them at American Legions in the rural counties, so you can go and get those. And so it's just a way to help with that. And then the important thing I think for all of us is follow-on case management. So why are you food insecure? Do we need to help you? You know, do we need to help you with housing that's not as expensive? Do we need to upgrade your wage? Do we need to get you a different job? Have you applied for your VA benefits? Have you done all these things? Let us help you get out of that situation. So in essence, it's a way to get them on the hook to find out more information similar to what Dr. Fritz is doing. That's exactly right. And and again, get that access to them so they, you know, to try and try and give them a place where they can go with dignity and, and then, you know, kind of go, oh, I think I can improve my situation. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the rising costs of food. Now, you know, I like to talk about avenues of assistance and resources for people. Earlier in the show, Angel Holt shared a situation where an increase in one set of benefits canceled out her food assistance benefit. CJ, how often have the people you worked with and serve had something similar happen to them? I mean, I think that's pretty common. I think uh, Eden was just mentioning this, that, you know, one's pay through the military can make you ineligible for SNAP benefits. Um, These sorts of things happen more often than you would think. And you would think that in our culture at this point, we've sort of be able to figure that out and address this. But uh, it's really, really shocking how often it happens. So what resources are available for Angel and people in her situation? Um, I, I think that's exactly, you know, thinking about the the vast array of resources out there um, from Second Harvest and the food bank system. And that is actually a, a whole network of food banks around Middle Tennessee, right, that are at churches, that are at Operation Stand Down, at other nonprofits like St. Luke's Community House. Um, uh, there are uh, available resources like through the Tennessee Justice Center who will provide uh, support to sign up for SNAP or WIC because, I mean, this is another issue. Like, that's not actually very easy to do. Mm -hmm. Um, We are also working with farmers markets around Middle Tennessee to be able to accept SNAP benefits at farmers markets um, for fresh produce grown locally. So. I wonder what's happened in Nashville and the area that makes it harder for food pantries to help people. 
That's a good question. I mean, I think uh, most recently it's the cost of food um, uh, that's going up. So the costs for food banks are going up. Uh, General Murray mentioned that they we do, in fact, buy food from Second Harvest. It's highly discounted. But the, those prices have risen. Um, you know, I think getting to Reggie and, and local agriculture, I mean, developing a more robust food system around local and regional agriculture would also help. Um, a lot of our institutions, higher ed, uh, the school systems, can't buy from our local farmers due to some regulatory issues. It's called gap certification. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're having to buy food from Kentucky and Ohio and Southern Illinois. Um, so developing a, a more robust food system, I think, is the way to think about this. It's not just about access. It's the whole system from production to consumption to waste um, that, that we need to think about to address from, the whole system. From your mouth to the state legislature's ears. <laughs> Okay. So, Dr. Fritz, you know, there's obstacles that we've been talking about. I imagine that there are even tougher ones when kids have to be fed. What are you hearing about our local support systems? Um, I think you're certainly right. And taking into account not only an individual, but also a family and and getting everything um, needed to support both the the parents and and kids in the family is a challenge. And um, I know that certainly one of the Another gap in the system, I think, is um, often families that may actually be eligible to to qualify for SNAP benefits or their children may be eligible to qualify for some SNAP assistance aren't aware of that eligibility or or may not know how to navigate the system to be able to connect with and enroll in and, and continue to get that assistance that may really help get the food and, and nutritious food that is needed to for their family. And so I think that is a, a place to really focus and try to identify families that, that can be um, assisted by groups like Tennessee Justice Center or other people to help connect with more of the federal benefits in addition to the community resources that, that we've been speaking about. You know, we know that the rent is too damn high. And our food costs are now shooting through the roof. The city's been taking steps to make housing more affordable. But, you know, Eden, what would you like to see the city do to help people? Gosh, the list is, no, that list is long, but no. Um, I think one thing that I would like to highlight and that I think the city could highlight, and, and Dr. Fritz alluded to it, it's information. And so people don't know. And so... What you might not know is CJ provides Foods for Veterans every Wednesday. The National Food Project brings that. So if you're a veteran, you know that you can get a hot meal if you're a homeless veteran, or maybe you're living on fixed income, you can come get a hot meal on Wednesdays provided by the National Food Project, okay? But if you're not in my system or you don't know that or whatever, you wouldn't be aware of that. So you're sitting at home and you're food insecure, but you could at least get one meal a week right there. And oh, by the way, if you're going to come there, then I can give you a food bag. So I think I think as donors look and as the city looks to really highlight collaborative endeavors and to help us be more collaborative, whether that's funding, whether that's information, whether that's public radio, letting us get the word out, Mm -hmm. you know, all great things like that. And so I I think the city knows a lot about all of us, but they, they don't bring us together enough. Maybe, I don't know, CJ might have something on that too, but that's where I think maybe that could help. CJ? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, in thinking about things like food deserts or um, places with chronic uh, chronic lack of access, um, we think about going into these places and providing the access. But at this point in Nashville, real estate really prices us out of being able to do that. It just doesn't make economic sense. So finding property and making that available uh, for nonprofit community grocery stores or other nonprofit organizations uh, to have to, to bring their programming to these high need areas whose real estate prices are going through mm-hmm. the roof. I mean, mm-hmm. this is one one idea. Yeah. How can the city call itself the it city when so many people are going hungry and food insecure? Absolutely. Now, now yesterday, the Tennessee Department of Human Services announced it's going to add a one time additional payment of five hundred dollars to families using EBT cards under its Family First program. Now, while the extra money helps, Dr. Fritz, do you think it goes far enough? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I I think certainly having any additional support for families is wonderful. Um, I think sort of a the one-time nature of it, it makes it a little challenging. Um, as you can imagine, you know, families have continuing recurring needs, sometimes unexpected needs. Perhaps, you know, their kid gets sick, they're home from work, the kid has to go to the hospital creating a whole host of sort of new issues that the family and, and children is, children are having to deal with. Um, so I think, you know, ideally being able to set up a more recurring sort of longitudinal um, type of assistance would be, you know, perhaps better, but um, mm-hmm. certainly being able to support families in any way is now, appreciated. Today is Giving Tuesday. Really quick, we've got about 30 seconds left. Each of you, I'd like to know why a day like today is important to the work you do. Dr. Fritz? Um, I think just being able to have the, the resources um, to distribute to families that need them, to, be, to send to our community partners, um, knowing they can go there and actually get nutritious food that they need. Eden? Unrestricted dollars are the most important dollars, and that's what happens on Giving Tuesday. They're not tied to a federal grant. They're not tied to a state grant. All of that, and that allows our programming to go further. CJ. Yeah, I mean, we simply could not do what we do without the support of our community. We're filling the gap that our government and our other social structures have have left. And, um, and at the moment, we have to do that ourselves, and we need support from the community. CJ Sentel is the CEO of the Nashville Food Project. He was joined by Eden Murray of Operation Stand Down Tennessee and Dr. Christian Fritz of Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Thanks to you all for being with us today and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, 41 years after the first cases of AIDS were reported in the United States, we'll talk with some of the folks who've been on the front lines fighting the disease in Middle Tennessee. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Matthew Charles. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville.org. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.